electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. And once again, a big happy anniversary to the Halftime Report. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange today on a very busy Friday. Snap gets slapped by Apple's new rules, and Facebook's down another 5% as a result. Intel comes up short again, and Beyond Meat gets grilled. We will have all the latest on all of these rocky results. And the Fed has a new set of rules for trading. Is it an acknowledgement of guilt, or does it help Jay Powell's case for reappointment? Plus, the Donald Trump SPAC, the company set to take Trump's planned social media outfit public, has sort of 1,000% in two days, and it's not the only name surging as politics and meme stocks collide. That story and more coming up in rapid fire. But first, record highs for the Dow and S&P 500. But Dom, welcome back, Dom, as well. David Tepper, you heard him last hour, sees a potential turnoff for equities. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of folks out there. I don't believe that David Tepper is the only one out there, Kelly, who feels as though this market might be a little bit toppish, a little bit more overvalued, a little less attractive on a reward risk reward basis. But it does kind of tell you a little bit about what's happening overall thematically, because we seem to be hitting these record high levels. Kelly set it out there first. So I'm going to put the gold stars next to the Dow and the S&P 500. They did at one point today hit record intraday levels. We're not at closes yet. However, you can see the S&P is backed off right now. It's down about 10 points. I'll give you some context on the day's highs. We were up roughly 10 points and down 25 at the lows. A little bit in the middle of that range there, though tilted towards the downside. The Nasdaq has been an underperformer all day today. So we'll see if that big technology trade continues the way it has been. Uh, It's Friday, so let's take stock a little bit about the sector movements that we've seen so far. The two sectors that have done the best in the S&P 500 over the last week-to-date period have been real estate and healthcare. Those two sectors have done very well, the two best performers. Meanwhile, communication services, because of the underperformance of many social media stocks, especially today, the worst performing sector there. So you can see that big drop off in green over here for that communication services trade. And there have been roughly, I lost count at this point, 69 record highs in the S&P 500 stocks. 69 companies have made record highs or thereabouts so far today. One of them, and a Dow component as well as American Express, up 5% right now. That's also a record high. And Kelly, it's because they report earnings better than expected. Revenues better than expected. Spending on goods and services among card members there, Kel, has more than doubled or roughly doubled from the same time last year. Maybe no surprise given the pandemic, but restaurant spending by cardholders is now back to pre-pandemic levels. A lot to be gleaned about the consumer, the driver of the American economy, Kelly, from yep. that Amex report. I'll did send things back over to you. Did your little vacation have anything to do with that, Dom? My, my little vacation did. I did spend some time down in South Florida, and I did probably use my Amex card more than <laughs> once down there as well. So, well, yes, I am traveling. I am also eating out more often. So 
maybe it's a good thing for the American Shareholders, economy. thank you. Uh, Dom, thank you very you much. The moves in bond yields today are catching everybody's attention. The U.S. 10-year near 1.7 percent. The German boomed nearly positive, can you believe it? And the inflation break-even rate that the market closely follows is at a 15-year high. It's up around almost 2.7 percent. All of this is setting the Nasdaq lower by about 130 points right now, while the Dow and S&P are relatively flat. How much more risk is there in tech and momentum stocks? Joining me now is Vahan Janjigian. He is Greenwich Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer. Great to have you here. And what are your thoughts? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me back. Well, you know, I, I do think the market is a bit pricey, um, but I've learned uh, through experience that when you uh, get out of the market, you're taking more risks than if you stay in. So uh, despite the fact that I'm a little bit concerned about some of these inflated prices, especially in the tech sector, um, I think it makes sense to stay in the market. But I really think people should tilt more toward value. If you look at um, results over the very long term, you'll see that value stocks do outperform growth and small cap stocks do outperform large cap stocks. The last 10 years has been an exception to this rule. So either the rule has changed or we're going to eventually go back to what's considered normal. Yeah, hey, listen, you put your finger on it because the growth investors right now are going, no way uh, does value outperform uh, based on recent memory. I want to play, you know, you, you brought up such an interesting point that we just heard David Tepper speaking to Scott Wapner about, because I don't know if you caught that interview, Vahan, but he basically is sort of reluctantly in stocks, if I could describe it. I basically saying he thinks there's a lot of risk. He thinks they could go down, but he also kind of has to stay in. Let's play a little snippet of how he's thinking about it. Listen, if you really have inflation become setting the economy and the Fed's behind the curve and they're not going to raise rates in the middle of the year that, you know, <laughs> the bond market starts going up a lot and people think it's not going to go beyond 2%, but all of a sudden it's at 2.5%. I guarantee you, you won't love owning stocks that much that day, but you won't like owning bonds and you won't, and cash you can't, you're going to be getting killed by inflation. So he's saying there is no alternative and notice how he said you won't like holding stocks that day. How much, you know, so is this a, a kind of a little bit of a reset that could happen if rates move higher or a much, much bigger risk to stocks over even call it the next decade? Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with what he said. I mean, certainly uh, rising interest rates um, is bad for both stocks and bonds. But, you know, over the long term, I think the stock market can handle higher rates. So I'm not too concerned about that. Um, as far as inflation goes, um, yes, we are having higher levels of inflation, but I'm still in the Fed camp. I do believe that uh, inflation will prove to be transitory. Now, of course, transitory is a tricky word because it implies a time frame. I mean, if we had a spike in inflation for a month or two, everybody would agree that that was transitory. But if it lasts longer, and I think it will last longer, I think uh, I think we'll see higher levels of inflation for up to a year. Um, you know, is that transitory? Well, over the long term, yes, but it could be very painful in the short term. So um, I think we could see higher levels of inflation. Um, if interest rates go up uh, at the long end of the curve, that should actually be uh, pretty good news because we see a um, increasing spread and a higher yield curve. Um, so, so that could be good because that, that's usually a sign that we're not going to have a recession. But, um, you know, as far as there being no alternative to stocks, um, that's true. But I think you can use stocks as an alternative to bonds. I mean, there are lots of stocks that have very nice dividend yields. And, and one that I've been adding recently is uh, Verizon. It's a relatively stable stock in terms of price, uh, yet it provides a great yield. It's a good alternative to bonds. 
I mean, it's so stable, it's basically gone nowhere in two years. So, I, you know, and let me point out, Bahan, actually, there's some, there's some very interesting sort of self-hedging going on with the three names that, that you are highlighting today. Verizon you like because of the dividend. Ford you like because it doesn't have one and is investing in right. EVs. But then you like fossil fuels, even though you like Ford for investing in EVs. Right. You know, that's that's a good point. You know, my, my point is that we are having this transition to clean energy and that transition is real and it will continue. However, we will rely on fossil fuels for quite some time. And I think I think investors were wrong to avoid the energy sector for the last several years. And energy stocks got incredibly cheap because everybody assumed that all of a sudden a switch was going to be flipped and everybody's going to have an electric vehicle. Uh, that's not the case. You know, now we're seeing we're in a situation where we have very strong demand for energy and not enough supply and oil prices have gone up. Now, a couple of the things that have happened is, uh, you know, I, I've been adding XLE and I've been adding Murphy Oil. Um, these stocks and, and this ETF have not really kept up with the rise in uh, oil prices until fairly recently. Now, all of a sudden, they've really surged. Yeah. Um, and I think they're still a good place to be, even though I've been trimming a little bit because they've become outsized positions in my portfolios. Well, and again, I think this can, can give people a sense of what it looks like to, to sort of be in the market position that you are philosophically and still have to figure out, you know, which stocks to own uh, for all of that said. Really interesting stuff, Han. Thanks so much for joining me today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Vahanjad is Chief Investment Officer with Greenwich Wealth Management. All right, now to the first of our ref result stocks today. Intel is down more than 11% and shaving more than 40 points off the Dow right now. Results disappointing as the chip shortage hurt PC sales. Josh Lipton joins me now with more, and including when CEO Pat uh, Gelsinger, Josh, thinks we could see a turnaround. So, Kelly, Intel swinging and missing, as you point out. Check out this stock. It is plummeting in today's trade on a weaker than expected sales report. The company saying it is impacted by this ongoing component shortage. Also, CEO Pat Gelsinger gave more color about what his big plans for the company are going to cost. Remember, he is ramping up spending on the company's manufacturing technology to bring its latest and greatest chips to the market and creating a new foundry business, meaning making chips for others. But all of this, of course, costs money. Capital expenses will be as much as $28 billion next year in profit. Profitability will come under pressure. Management offering gross margin guidance of between 51 and 53 percent for 2022, well below the street's estimate. And Intel expects to be in this range for the next two to three years. Gelsinger, though, sounding confident on CNBC this morning. The momentum is building. We've clearly laid out a plan that we believe is executable. Aggressive, of course. But this is a great company with great capacity, and I'm committed to make this plan come true. And we're going to have a string of great successes in our future. We've laid out a clear picture to the street of what to expect over time. And today, never like to see the stock go down, but I feel great because now everybody knows what the plan is. But I did speak with Bernstein's Stacy Rasgon. He is skeptical. Their long-term growth targets, he says, are outlandish in his words. After all, they are losing share in their core markets to rivals like AMD. And even if they do execute perfectly, Stacy says this is clearly going to be a very long slog for Gelsinger and his team. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you very much. Our Josh Lipton. Intel, not the only company predicting prolonged chip shortages. AMD's Lisa Su and Marvell's Matt Murphy, both also saying this could extend through 2022. Now, that said, AMD and Marvell shares are up 30 and 40 percent this year, respectively. Intel is now negative on the year, down half a percent. For more, I'm joined by Syed Alam. He's global semiconductor industry lead at Accenture. It's great to have you here. And 
you know, normally if it were a chip shortage holding Intel back, it'd be a very bullish thing. But it doesn't seem like that's the whole story here. Yes. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. Um, the Intel result uh, highlights the importance of the chip shortage around the whole chipset solution. It's not just the main processor. You need the rest of the chip in your solution to be able to deliver the products to the end consumer. And the shortage could be impacted based on multiple factors, uh, including uh, the consumers have already bought a lot of PCs uh, earlier during pandemic. So there may be slowness in demand also that could be impacting uh, the overall situation in addition to the chip shortage. You know, Intel made this really interesting announcement a month or two back when it said it was going to try to make chips for the automotive industry. The legacy automotive industry, of course, being way behind in semiconductor design and technology. So you could say on the one hand, it's the right position for Intel. Okay, they're struggling a little bit to keep up. So why not make chips for uh, an end user that's also struggling to keep up? But I can't imagine that's how shareholders are really going to see great value creation. What can Intel do at this point? I mean, should they just outsource all their manufacturing to Taiwan and just say, forget it, we're, you know, we can't go that route. It's going to be too difficult. Yes, as their IDM 2.0 strategy, uh, Intel also said that uh, for some of the leading uh, node manufacturing, they are going to foundries. Uh, in addition to that, um, they are offering the foundry services for some of the trailing node uh, capacity. And, and then also have the ambition to be foundry services provider for the leading node capacity also. You saw the announcements from them earlier. And there is a need for uh, automotive chip uh, suppliers uh, to be adding to the trailing node manufacturing capacity that uh, helps with the automotive industry. They use mostly trailing node or older technology. So that could also help the automotive industry. The chips for the automotive industry is um, uh, slightly to grow by 12% over the next five years also. So that's a good business to be in also. It's okay. I, I mean, I guess my point is that if you look at how much Intel has lagged its rivals on a one-year, on a five-year, on a 10-year basis, you know, to move into an industry that has 12% annual growth and is, at, is behind technology and not at the forefront of it just seems like an acknowledgement that they don't really know where else to go. So, you know, they've looked into a couple of deals, obviously. Um, is, what should they, what other options do they have at this point? Yeah, I mean, uh, they, and I think this is the strategy. They have multi-pronged strategy um, in IDM 2.0. Uh, one, as I said earlier, going to foundries for some of the leading node. Uh, providing the foundry services for some of the applications that they see the growth. In addition to the automotive, obviously, there are demand coming from IoT, uh, XR, AI, all of the other applications also. Plus, their own core business, compute, is still uh, is a major segment for the overall semiconductor industry. All right. Syed, thanks so much for your insight today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Syed Alam with Accenture on the chip industry. Coming up, Fed Chair Jay Powell in the hot seat. Will the Fed trading controversy mean the end of his tenure? A former Fed economist weighs in. Plus, shares of 23andMe are lower today after they buy a telemed company. We'll speak with the CEO, Susan Wojcicki, about this deal and much more. She joins us coming up on The Exchange. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM. 
a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. The Fed announcing sweeping new investing rules for officials and senior staff, barring trading in individual stocks and bonds, among other things. These ethics concerns, some of which date back to March 2020, come amid a turbulent time for the Fed as it grapples with how to best tackle rising inflation. One of my next guests says the new rules give Congress some justification to remove Chair Powell. Joining me now is Bill Lee. He's Milken Institute's chief economist, and he's alongside our very own Steve Leisman uh, for some more reporting on this issue as well. Bill, it's, it's good to have you. So tell me justification and what sense? Well, the rules have codified the behavior that Fed staff have understood for the longest time. The fact that we had some bad actors uh, doing things that had the optics of doing terrible trading uh, and taking opportunities of their position is a a stain on the Fed staff that uh, the chair Powell is going to have to live down. One of the things that we have to realize, though, is that if we truly believe in diversity, we're going to have to find a way to recruit people from all over, including people who have had successful careers in the financial markets. That's the hard part. How do you allow these guys to have enough portfolio room to adjust their portfolios and rebalance them the way our textbooks are telling us to do in personal finance, and at the same time, stay within the boundaries of doing the proper thing while sitting at the at the Fed? You know, we spoke with Randy Krasner, Bill, about this yesterday, who thinks that you know, no policies were violated with the trading, although I believe the policy did say uh, to avoid the appearance of conflicts of interest. Do you think that that policy was violated with these trades? If it looks bad, is that the whole point? The point is, if it looks bad, it is bad. And if you're in a position, a public position like the Federal Reserve, you're well aware of that. I think we we were taught this uh, from day one that when we entered the Fed as, as young economists. And what surprises me is that when we parachute guys from the outside, like Kaplan and, 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 and even uh, what surprised me is Rosengren, who has been an insider his entire career. Uh, Rich Clarida essentially has said, I had these pre-programmed uh, rebalancing of my portfolio, and, and, and these were things that were well-known. They did not take advantage of any decisions. So, so I think we have to make, make some room for individual allowances for, to let people who have these special needs uh, be able to conduct their business, but in, with strict guidelines. And that's what the new rules have codified. Well, see, we certainly know that this now covers a lot more than it would have before their response to the pandemic. And I think people could even understand if the pandemic response came first and then maybe divestments or a change was made swiftly thereafter. It's just that it took 18 months until it was reported you know, by the press for the Fed to then quickly scramble to come up with, you know, a change in policy. Boy, Kelly, I, I, I'll do respect to Bill. I, I think he misreads the situation. I think it's far worse than he gets on as from just a couple bad actors. Uh, what was going on with these trades was known to other people inside the Federal Reserve. Where were they to say something? Uh, Kaplan was engaging in trades like this before 2020. Um, and now we know that a memo went out, which is now on your screen, 
In March of 2020, in light of the rapidly developing nature of recent and likely upcoming system actions, please consider observing a trading blackout and avoid making unnecessary security transactions for at least the next several months. And many people did trades like that, Bill. So I would like to believe, you know, as much as you want to you want to think that the the Federal Reserve is one of the, the good guys out there, which I think is has been proven to be true in terms of uh, uh, what do you want to say, uh, up and up agencies out there. But this was going on inside the organization, and there's no sense at all that there was any check and balance inside the organization to these types of trades that were happening. Now that we know, especially that March 2020 note went out. I also, Steve, I don't know if you have any more reporting on this, but I found it curious that the Boston Fed won't be releasing more information about Rosengren's trades. If you know, I don't know if there's a rationale, but in the Reuters story, I couldn't find one. Um, why not be fully transparent if there's nothing to hide? I think I'm hoping this all comes out, Kelly, in the um, uh, the IG's investigation. I feel like we know what we need to know about Eric Rosengren's trades. He was buying mortgage-backed securities alongside the Federal Reserve, making multiple trades. And, and now that we know this March 2020 thing came out and it was sent to all the Fed officials, uh, it looks even worse. And Kaplan as well. I mean... Uh, that this note went out. Maybe it wasn't followed. Uh, um, and even where were the ethics officers inside the individual district banks who would have received this memo ostensibly from the Gov- Board of Governors ethics officers saying, no, the, the, the guidance now we're getting from Washington is not to do this. So it looks to me, with all due respect to Bill, like the system failed in multiple places. I'm not sure, Billy, I think you would almost agree with that. I mean, I think that is your your point here. Do you want to kind of add a final word? And and where does this then leave the Fed and and Chair Powell? The corporate culture at the Fed at the staff level has always been pristine. And what has been lost has been that enforcement mechanism for people who come in from the outside, especially at the top. And I think one of the things that we have to do is to strengthen those rules. But I think there's no doubt that everyone who works on the staff is well aware of the sensitivity of their work and well aware that what they do has to look right, especially when Congress is is at a, a place where political decisions are dominating decisions on monetary policy. And you get, instead of getting talent, you're getting political uh, uh, biases being put at the board. What I'm most afraid of is that this gives uh, the Biden administration, the progressives, the opportunity to stuff the board. And that, to me, is going to be the biggest damage that comes about from all this. I take your point as well. Go ahead, Steve. I know we have to go, Kelly, but I Mm -hmm. I want to make one very quick point. If Bill is making a distinction between the staff and the members of the FOMC, then I would not disagree with that. I don't have any information this was going on at the staff level. And I think Bill might be making that distinction. And perhaps I missed that. I want to say that I, I would tend to agree with that right now. Sure, sure. No, but I think that sort of everybody's points here suggest that this was maybe outside the scope of what was seen as the norm or expected to be the norm, uh, as you know, at least what we know of, of it at, at this point. Guys, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate it. Bill Lee and Steve Leisman joining me with the very latest uh, on these changes at the Fed. Coming up, Snap plummeting today after a huge impact from Apple's privacy rules. We will look at the ripple effect across other big ad-driven stocks like Facebook. And the SPAC everyone is talking about, it's called digital world acquisition, but it's the political world that it's really going after. Details after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's up 85 points despite the drag from Intel today. It's a quarter percent higher, and it's the outperformer, the S&P down six. Look at the Nasdaq down 125 points, almost 1% on those higher bond yields and inflation expectations. Let's check the sectors. Financial and consumer staples leading the way. Financial's up 1%. Communication services, by far the worst performer, down 2.6%, and that's because of SNAP. Sinking on a disappointing earnings report last night. Shares are down 25%. Now, they're blaming Apple's new privacy rules that require users to opt in if they agree to be tracked across apps. It's what helps you deliver targeted ads. Well, only 16% of Snap's users have agreed, according to reports, and that's hurting the companies that rely on the data. I should say 16% of all Apple users. Twitter, Match, Facebook is down 5.5% today. And look at Trade Desk. They're an ad services company. They're down 8% in sympathy. Let's turn the page. On the flip side, Cleveland Cliffs is higher on strong results and hopes for even higher steel prices going forward. Interesting note from the report, the company paid out $45 million in bonuses to employees for getting the COVID-19 vaccine. The CEO saying it was the best way to use their cash. And we end with Newmont. That stock also higher as the price of gold has been on the rise lately. Newmont up about 2% and 8% in October for gold as inflation fears ramp up. Over to Christina Parts and Evelis now for a CNBC News update. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. Here is what's happening at this hour. The Supreme Court will not temporarily block the Texas law that bans most abortions. But the justices will hear arguments in the case on November 1st. The high court also saying we'll hear arguments on a suit by former President Trump. He wants to stop the release of some documents to the House panel investigating the January 6th insurrection. Attorney General Merrick Garland unveiling a new program to combat discriminatory lending. He says redlining or the refusal of loans or insurance based on one's location remains persistent in parts of the country. He also announced a redlining settlement with a Tennessee bank and said other investigations are underway. Actor Alec Baldwin expressing shock and sending condolences to the family of the cinematographer who officials say he shot with a prop gun on a movie set. Baldwin called the shooting an accident and says he is cooperating with police on the investigation. On the news, outrage over the death of Helena Hutchins and the latest from police on the shooting. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Christina, thank you. Well, bad weather taking a toll on Beyond Meat. Twisted tea wasn't enough to save Boston Beer's third quarter. And Trump's social SPAC surge, it's all coming up in rapid fire. We're back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few other stories that should be on your radar on this busy Friday. Joining me now, CNBC's own Bob Bassani, along with Chantico Global CEO and Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist Gina Sanchez and Inside Edge Capital Management founder Todd Gordon. Dot and Gina are both CNBC contributors. Welcome to everybody. We'll start with Beyond Meat today. Shares down 14% after lowering revenue guidance for the third quarter. They're expecting only $106 million in sales compared to their original guidance of between $120 and $140 million. The company blaming headwinds related to the Delta variant and the weather for slowing growth. Delays in distribution were caused by the labor shortage, while severe storms stymied the water supply at one of its Pennsylvania facilities for about two weeks. Again, shares are down 13% today and now 25% on the year. Bob, do we call this excuses? Yes. Uh, well, look, it's not, it's, what they cited is not imaginary. However, let's look at the other side. Maybe they are having execution problems, you know? 
Um, maybe there's other things. Maybe they're not great at forecasting what's going on. You know what I think? I, I think maybe, maybe the demand is not quite as strong as everybody thought. Okay, it's not a debacle like hard seltzer, but, you know, plant-based meat products. Okay, it's not a fad. We certainly know that. But is it really going to take over meat-based products and the cows go home kind of story? <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to know a little bit more about the demand side of this before we start blaming macro factors like they were citing. Well, and, I, and we talked about, I think Duncan took one of the items off its menu, Gina, lately. Uh, that was a, I don't know if it was Beyond or one of the others, but it's a crowded space. Its success sometimes can be its own um, demise, right? You get people kind of with all sorts of competitors. The price points come down. And again, they have all of these other headwinds. Well, would you own the stock here, Gina? No, they were they were priced for success, Kelly. And the fact is, is you're absolutely right. What happened in Duncan is happening across many menus across the space. Right now, the reopening is happening slower than we expected. So that macro factor is real. And if you look at these sort of not your traditional op- you know, options on the menus, those are coming down. And so that beyond meat option may not be may not stay there. And that's where a lot of their sales were occurring. So I think that they got priced for success, got hit with the pandemic and may have had some execution issues. Todd, are you moving beyond beyond? Uh, I'm not. It's special to me, Kelly. I actually was at the NASDAQ for the IPO doing CNBC, but uh, you know they've come off significantly. They were a $10 billion company. They now have a $6 billion market cap. They're losing $20 million a quarter, and they've taken a lot of debt. They have a 4.4 debt-to-equity ratio. That focuses on long-term debt. And in the short term, if you look at the current ratio, uh, which is, again, short term, they're at 17. Their competitors are in the one to four. So they took in a lot of debt. And they've been very vague what they're doing with this debt to try to keep uh, this uh, ship afloat. You know, unfortunately, you have the same amount of calories and fat as a regular beef burger. And there's like five times the amount of sodium. So I think Bob's right. I think the demand is not there. Uh, they broke below 100. That's not good. And there's no support for the foreseeable future. So I'm beyond owning this. So you are, be, you are beyond, beyond. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I got it. All right. All right. I understand. Let's move along to shares of Mattel, which are higher after a big earnings beat. In fact, business here is so good that the CEO told Jim Cramer he's even considering other avenues to drive growth beyond toys and games. We're seeing a lot of opportunities to capture value from our intellectual properties. We just recently launched a Barbie radio uh, in partnership with iHeartMedia and Warner Music. See opportunities in digital gaming, NFT, digital experiences, and a lot of other opportunities to capture value in addition to the great work that we do inside the toy aisles. And the shares up about 2% today, Bob, and 19% this year. So while it's painted as a much more of a success story, they've barely matched the S&P 500 here. Yeah, but listen, considering what could have gone wrong here, this was just a great quarter. These guys did a fabulous job. First, they they extended the agreements. Uh, they had a nice agreement with WWE for action figures. They have a deal with uh, Pixar on action figures. So they're extending the brand lines really nicely. And all those comments they had to say about the supply chains were just great. Pulling forward production to make sure stuff gets in the stores for Christmas. It's not going to matter if they don't have things to sell. They de- did that. More ocean freight capacity. I mean, they really tackled this in a creative way and anticipated this. They had to de- start dealing with this uh, months ago. I don't know about the intellectual property comments. NFTs for 10-year-olds, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That seems like a little bit of a stretch. But no, what no. they reported was just terrific. Todd, NFTs are for 10-year-olds. <laughs> That's exactly the demo that that understands it. It's certainly not me. 
I'm 42 and I'm, I'm just catching up with it, Kelly. Um, <laughs> look, I think first, uh, I think we got to let the technicals kind of pull into the fundamentals. It's been an underperforming market, as you said. If you just look at a nice little consolidation in this year, until we get above 22 and a half, yeah, I, I wouldn't touch it. You have to let the technicals take you in. Bob said they were very proactive uh, securing their supply chains. They made room in ocean uh, freights to get product here. They've embraced an online e-commerce strategy, go direct to consumers and their Barbie Hot Wheels, still very uh, popular. Hasbro is a big competitor of stronger digital presence. presence. Uh, it trades with a higher PE, uh, better uh, free cash flow. So I would watch that competition. Um, it's kind of a no touch for me. Uh, streets predicting about $1.32 next year, okay. what puts it at about a 15.64 multiple. So not overly expensive, but again, Kind of a boring chart. Nothing, no opportunity for me here. Gina, just a quick word. Would you own it here? I actually would. I think it's quite interesting. This is a space, the consumer space got absolutely pummeled. And so obviously they understood that the reopening was key to get it to reestablishing their pricing. And I think their comment on intellectual property, I, I don't agree with the NFTs, but I do agree that the intellectual property components that they own are very real and very valuable. And they are finding other ways to monetize those. All right. Let's now get to the seltzer that Bob was referencing a moment ago. Boston Beer, the parent company of Sam Adams and Truly Hard Seltzer, continuing to struggle as the seltzer trend fizzles out. They recorded a one-time loss of $100 million last quarter due to that drop. Shares are down 60% now from their 52-week high. Uh, they are up 4% today. Gina, you want to be a buyer now? Well, you know, I think this space was, I, the hard seltzer is following the same trend as general alcohol, uh, which is that we're going back to work now. So that whole day drinking thing is over. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that I'd be a buyer right now. Todd? Uh, I agree. I agree. They're, they're expensive valuation, 25 times forward earnings. Uh, there is uptrend support. Again, go back to the technicals real quick. Not until 380. Wow. That puts it at 18 times forward earnings, a little bit more in line. Mm -hmm. I think we're a more health conscious society post-COVID. Alcohol consumption, I think, is kind of losing some fan favorites and kind of going towards the other substance that's yeah. becoming legal. So I think we're getting a little bit of a change in leadership there. Again, no further comment, Kelly. Yeah, none, none asked. Uh, 380, by the way, the shares are at 537. Bob, a uh, last word. Twisted Tea is a bright spot for them. I think I recently bought, I didn't right. know it was, well, whatever. It, it's up 22% in the past uh, 13 weeks for that category. Thank you for bringing that up. So let's give these guys a break. I mean, <laughs> you, to innovate in the beverage industry, you, to, you have to innovate to survive. Okay, so it didn't work out. And it's so easy to say, hey, you see, I told you, they should have just <laughs> stuck with Sam Adams and Dogfish Head, stuff they knew. But you have to innovate to survive. These guys were very innovative in the, in the past with the tea company you mentioned, Kelly. I know they're talking to cannabis companies. I know they're talking to soft drink companies about other kinds of ideas. Okay, so it didn't work with the hard seltzer thing. In a year from now, we're going to forget about it and we'll be on to something else. You know, Innovation is the only you, way to survive in beverages. Yeah, I, wanted, I want this, Bob, to go talk about Beyond Meat now. Give that poor company a break. Well, the, wait a minute, though. They're, they're a sort of a one-trick pony, though. They're, they're going to have a lot harder time innovating than in the, in the beverage industry overall. That's the important thing. So you, it hard, it, it's like hard seltzer is not a plant-based meat product of one company. You've got all sorts of different products when you have beverages. They have a tougher time. Fair enough. <laughs>
Uh, by the way, Boston Beer's founder, Jim Cook, will be on Closing Bell to talk about all of these trends and more in a CNBC exclusive at 3 p.m. Eastern time. All right. In the last minute that we have here, just want to squeeze in and mention uh, the second day now that we're seeing wild moves in the SPAC taking former President Trump's media company on the uh, public. Digital World Acquisition, ticker DWAC, up another 130 percent today, has been halted multiple times. It quadrupled yesterday. It's one of the top trending tickers on Reddit's Wall Street bets. And an advertising software startup linked to Trump's re-election campaign is going parabolic right along with it. Funware, ticker PHUN, soaring a thousand percent today before pulling back some. Trump is expected to roll out a beta version of a new social media platform next month. I thought Whitney Tilson had a, a fun line on this, Todd, where he said, if you want to support Trump, there's probably uh, better f- ways to do it. You got to be really careful with some with some of these stocks, the way that they're trading. You know, it was a, I, I when I was first in this business, Kelly, I was a very active day trader. I did my first day trade in a couple of years making some money in this thing. It's been wild. I've never seen price action like this. Uh, I, I contacted a friend who's a very active gambler. I said, what are the odds uh, after this that Trump wins the election? He said they actually went down by half a percent. So I thought that was interesting. So maybe they're starting to vote that he's going to take on big cap tech. So uh, Trump's Twitter followers, 90 million. I uh, saw some good stats. If a quarter following is 22 million. Twitter's a 50 billion market cap, 200 users. So one-tenth is 20 million users with a 5 billion market cap. I think this thing is trading at about a 3 billion right now. So uh, certainly possibly justified. Really interesting. Again, I've never seen trading like this before. Yeah. If you're a, a, a normal at-home uh, gamer, please be careful with this name. And like we said, it is the meme stocks now meeting the political world uh, with fiery results. Guys, thank you all. Really appreciate it today. Bob Bassani, you see Bob Bassani, yeah. Gina Sanchez, and Todd Gordon. Still ahead, 23andMe is taking a big step in its push to transform individualized health care. CEO Ann Wojcicki joins me to discuss that next. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of 23andMe a little lower today after announcing they'll acquire telehealth company Lemonade Health for $400 million. 23andMe saying the deal will advance its vision of individualized primary care. Joining us now in a first on CNBC interview is 23andMe CEO Ann Wojcicki, along with our very own Meg Terrell. Meg? Well, Kelly, thanks so much. And thanks for being here. Really interesting deal today. Just tell us about your vision here, acquiring a telehealth company, a prescription drug delivery company, and integrating that with a genetics company. Yeah. Since the beginning of the company, one thing we always, like the vision was always to follow up on what Francis Collins had outlined back in 2001, which is that genetic information has the ability to really transform how we predict, prevent, and treat all human disease. And so fundamentally, the reason why we're offering genetics to our customers is because it really is transformational, not just on the ancestry side, but on your health side. And the number one thing I've learned over the 15 years that we have been giving genetic information to our customers is that it's challenging to pull it all the way through into clinical care. So people learn really valuable insights about their health But the rest of the healthcare system is not necessarily trained on how to manage genetic information, and it's not geared towards prevention. And so much of what 23andMe can do is by really helping you understand risks and really opening up a whole new world of personalized prevention and genetic-based primary care. I think what a lot of people are trying to understand is just the what people use telehealth for right now is is often not things like prevention. It's things like your kids got the sniffles. You need to know if they need antibiotics or what you're supposed to do. 
how do you envision this kind of a different approach to using telemedicine as prevention and primary care uh, and then being able to integrate like I've got a clotting risk disorder in my genes. So, you know, stand up when you go for a long car ride. How do you envision this working? I absolutely see that there's this opportunity. Our customers have been pretty clear with us. They want to have a service that's actually trained on genetics so that they can understand, like, is there potentially a different path of treatment or are there different proactive steps they can actually take on prevention? And so the factor five, the blood clotting is a great example. And that's actually one of the reasons why I really love lemonade is the pharmacy component. So for example, some people find out that they are higher risk for a blood clot and that might change the type of oral contraceptive that people want to take. So having a system where it's completely integrated, where you can actually say, I'm learning all this genetic information, and now I can translate that into the care and potentially a prescription is what our customers have been asking for. Mm. And, and the existing uh, doctor uh, force at Lemonade, do they have knowledge of how to employ the genetics information you get with 23andMe already? Or does this require education from the company? I mean, this seems to be a problem with our medical system in general. Genetics really isn't well understood by, um, really aren't well understood by a lot of doctors. And sometimes this information gets used wrong. The thing that I love about Lemonade, again, is the quality of the team. I, I can't emphasize enough. Like it is a phenomenal team of individuals, even how they have set up the, the physician leadership and thinking through the protocols. So they have a physician leading who's leading up those protocols who comes from Kaiser Permanente and focus really on chronic disease management. And so it's, it's that mindset that they have here really of like, how do you really help people manage what they have or how do you really help people prevent what they might be able to so you're absolutely right. Most people are not trained on genetics, but the one thing 23andMe has in spades is genetics expertise. And what Lemonade now is going to bring to us is the entire infrastructure to really deliver personalized genetics-based care. Mm. All right. And this is really interesting. We'd love to get to talk to you more about it as it gets folded in, closing that acquisition by the end of the year. Thanks for being with us. Of course. And Meg, thank you for bringing that to us, okay. a, a glimpse really into what's going to be happening with medicine and the change in many ways can't come fast enough. We appreciate it. And, and thank you as well. Coming up from Michael Jordan sneakers to Bruce Springsteen's handwritten lyrics, the latest luxury Sotheby's auction is underway. We'll get the price action and what makes this event so unique at a time when asset prices everywhere seem to be soaring. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Seema Modi. Supply chain becoming a very popular topic this earnings season. Honeywell says the availability of material throughout the supply chain creating some big challenges when you're seeing this type of growth and demand from the end customer, specifically around semiconductors. Uh, Honeywell does have more electronics and computing power than the average industrial. It does see the chip shortage easing in the first half of next year, but shares nonetheless are down nearly 3%. Let's talk about appliance maker Whirlpool seeing its biggest revenue miss since 2009. Key issue is inflation, specifically steel and resin prices, which it is offsetting with higher prices. When asked whether it can continue to raise prices on its consumer without risking lower sales, the CEO said because appliances are not purchased on a regular basis, people are more likely to pay up. Shares actually turning around in today's session up 2.7%, but still down uh, about 15% from the high it hit back in May. Kelly, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Mad Money's Jim Cramer also wrote up his full analysis of Honeywell in his latest Investing Club newsletter. Sign up for those insights. 
by pointing your phone's camera at the QR code on the screen or heading to CNBC.com slash investing club. Sotheby's is hoping to win big in Las Vegas. Why Vegas? Robert Frank has that story next. Welcome back. Sotheby's has packed up its auction paddles and is hitting the Las Vegas Strip. Robert Frank is here with why they're leaving New York and London for the Strip. Robert. Well, Kelly, this is the first time that Sotheby's has had an evening sale in North America outside of New York. It's all part of the post-pandemic landscape for auction houses. Most of the bids now are digital, and many of the wealthy have left the big cities and are more spread out around the country. So the auctions can now literally follow the money. Sotheby's opening displays in Monaco, the Hamptons, even Palm Beach. In Vegas, the company will build a replica of its New York auction stage. It's going to host a lot of dinners and special events for its clients there. Las Vegas, we've found, is a convenient hub um, for people from, say, Texas, um, as well as California, to travel to. And so that's a lot of the clientele who are going to be attending the sale are people from the broader region. Now, the first auction is at the Bellagio Saturday with a collection of 11 Picassos that used to hang at the Picasso restaurant. They could fetch over $100 million dollars. The paintings are being sold by MGM Resorts. They include a portrait of Marie Therese. That's expected to top $20 million. On Sotheby's, sorry, on Sunday, Sotheby's brings out the bling with a luxury sale featuring jewelry, handbags, cars, and watches. And the big star, a signed pair of Michael Jordan's sneakers. He wore this pair in 1984. They're Nike Air Ships in one of his first games in the NBA, bids already hitting $1.1 million. They could become the most expensive sneakers ever sold. You Kelly? think this is a bad sign uh, for New York, Robert, in the long run? Yeah, it's, it's not great. It's, you know, when any industry that used to just be in New York spreads out, it's not great for New York, very good for the auction business, and the new younger clients that used to not want to come to New York in these fancy auctions just to buy things that they didn't really like. <laughs> right, and now they have this option instead. I, it really is a fascinating That's glimpse right. into it, Robert. Thank you for bringing it to us, our Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.